You're listening to the Unlocking Business Growth Podcast with Nola Heal. Nola has over 30 years of experience in financial and operations management for companies around the world. As a part-time CFO, she's dedicated to working with businesses of all sizes to create sustainable growth and amplify strategy. Brian Clayton is CEO and co-founder of GreenPal, an online marketplace that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. GreenPal has been called the Uber for lawn care by Entrepreneur Magazine and has over 200,000 active users, completing thousands of transactions per day. Before GreenPal, he started and eventually sold Peachtree, a $10 million annual revenue landscaping company in Tennessee. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for joining us today. You're currently CEO of Green Powell, connecting homeowners with local lawn care and hopefully not right now, snow removal. But your entrepreneurial experience started many years ago and it's changed and yet at a certain level remained the same. Can you perhaps take us back with some background beyond your bio? What got you started down this road? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on your show, Nola. It's, it's great to be here. Uh, so yeah, I'm CEO, co-founder of GreenPal, an app that is kind of like Uber for lawn mowing. And GreenPal is a 10-year overnight success. My two co-founders and I have been at this thing for a decade. Well done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so now we're nationwide in the United States, a uh, few hundred thousand people using our app to get their lawn mowed. And, and it's taken a while to get here, but it's it's going great now. Um, but before GreenPal, I uh, actually had a landscaping company. I started a lawn mowing business when I was in high school. Uh, I was actually forced into the lawn mowing business by my father on a hot summer day. He he came into my bedroom, interrupted me playing Nintendo and said, get <laughs> off your butt. I got a gig for you. He said, you're going to go mow the neighbor's yard. And he made me go cut the neighbor's grass. I wasn't living in a, in a democracy, a democratic household. Right. It was a direct order. And so made me go mow the neighbor's yard. And I got paid 20 bucks. And back in 1995, that was a lot of money. Awesome. And uh, I was hooked on on owning my own lawn mowing business uh, ever since then. I, I uh, First thing I did after I, I got paid was pass out a bunch of flyers all over the neighborhood. And, and I got like 10 or 20 customers that first summer. And I stuck with that lawn mowing business all through high school, all through college. And over a 15-year period of time, built up one of the larger landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, where I live, awesome. eventually getting it over 150 employees and getting it over eight figures in revenue. It was doing around $10 million a year in revenue. And then it was acquired by uh, a national company. And so nice. growing that business, you know, just from me and a push mower to 150 people, I, I learned quite a bit about you know how to get a business going. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds awesome. So you must have found it was pretty different uh, to make the transition from doing it yourself to doing it with 150 people, because that's a large yeah. number when they spread all over. How do you yeah. make the changes? You know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like a video game almost. You just work one level at a time and you there just, you, you just focus all of your, your, your intensity and all of your efforts on getting through the level that you're on. And so, growing a small business from you doing everything to hiring your first employee is like a level, like hit for 10 levels. Right. That's one of them. You know, that's a hard step to hire mm -hmm. your first employee. And then, then after that, you try to figure out, okay, well, 
what am I doing right? And what am I doing wrong? And how do I grow this to maybe three employees? And then I got triple my business. That's a whole level. As time goes on, you just work the levels. And next thing you know, you've got 50 or 60 people. And now you've got processes in place and you've got routines and you've got standard operating procedures. And now it's a different, it's a different game, you know, and, it's a, and every level has its own set of challenges. And that's how it was for me. Um, Looking back, there, there was a book that was written, I think, 10 or 15 years ago called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Mm-hmm. That's a really good book that talks about how to go from zero to, to your first 100K or a million dollars a year in revenue in a small business and, ha- and how it really is about processes and systems. And, and that book really talks about the difference between working in your business versus working on your business. And as time goes on, you try to spend less time working in the business and more time working on the business. So that's kind of how it unfolded for me, but it took a long time. It took, it took five years before I got my first five employees. And, and as time went on, I, I figured out what was working and was able to scale it. Makes a lot of sense. And no doubt those um, processes and procedures are what made it successful at the end of the day because you could standardize things, you could learn and and move on. And that's probably one of the success factors. So how different is it to grow a technology business rather than a more hands-on practical kind of business as you started with? It's a really good question because it was a it was a challenging transition. It was one that caught me by surprise because here I am, I, I spent 15 years growing a, a, one of the larger businesses in my market and I sold it. And that doesn't happen very often. The, mm-hmm. the businesses in the landscaping industry don't get acquired very often. So so I built up this big company and, and, I, and I got it sold. And here I, here I am, I think I know pretty much there is everything to know about, about small business and how to get a business started. And I thought, well, somebody needs to build an app to make all of this madness a lot easier uh, with getting a lawn mowing service. I spent 15 years doing it. I, I saw the problems and I saw that technology could make it easier. And I said, somebody's going to do it. It might as well be me. How hard could it be? And it was kind of naivete as an asset. It was kind of like, I didn't know what I didn't know. And uh, that's the only reason why I was kind of like lured into the game. If I had known how challenging it was going to be, I never would have done it. So I got lucky, I guess you could say, uh, being naive about it. Uh, but what, there were several things that caught me off guard. One is, you know, I didn't know how to build software. I didn't know how to design software. I didn't have the skills to even play the game. So I had to learn all of that. In fact, my two co-founders did as well. We had to teach ourselves how to build software. We had to teach ourselves how to design software, how to, how to market and distribute a marketplace like this. And so all of that took a very long time of just reading through blog posts, YouTube university, taking online classes, just learning all the skills we had to learn to even play in this game. And the second thing that I didn't really understand was when you're starting a tech business, there's the challenge of the technology piece, but something that's even bigger is um, whenever you're starting a a tech business, most of the time you're starting something brand new that Mm -hmm. doesn't exist. You're inventing something. You're inventing a brand new product. You're creating a new experience. You're creating a new uh, way to solve a problem better. And that's 10 times harder than running a traditional business, than opening a restaurant or opening a construction company or running a landscaping business or running a home cleaning business or running a daycare center, whatever. Small business is, is hard enough, but whenever you're inventing something brand new that, that nobody's ever used or, or even heard of, 
it's a lot harder. And I didn't realize that. And I didn't understand the difference between running a small business versus inventing a new product. But we got enough uh, early a, a validation from a handful of people who tried our first app to, to understand it was worth keep going. You know, it was worth it. It was worth it just to keep keep pushing forward. And I think our first year we ended with like 20 customers nice. <laughs> and it was, you know, while, while it was, it was yeah, something. It's, it, a it, it's a start. start. And, and I knew every one of them and I was able to talk to them and understand, okay, this is where, this is where we're coming up short. This is where uh, they wish the app would do something different, or this is where they wish, uh, uh, they, you know, it let them down or something like that. So we used all of that feedback to kind of forge our way through the unknown and understand what we were trying to build. And, uh, and, and that was, was really the only thing that kind of kept us alive was that early customer feedback. We knew all of our first several hundred customers personally, and then we used that, that, that feedback to kind of make the product better and better and better. Yeah, I would think that feedback is the secret to, to success, quite honestly, you know, because that initial MVP through the various stages of developing it, it's actually incredibly hard, you know, and one naturally goes into these processes of wanting all the bells and whistles. You can see what potentially would have helped you in this case in your previous business, but one can't start there. And right. it must be pretty frustrating as you go through the road knowing, well, we want to get this in here, but we've got to perfect the things before we go. Yes, it's, 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 it's a tough, uh, I guess you could say, dichotomy because uh, on the one hand, you know, you kind of have to ship out something that is, is good enough to delight people to use it. Mm -hmm. but on the other hand, you can't, you can't build all the bells and whistles you want. Reed, uh, there's a guy named Reed Hoffman who was a founder of LinkedIn and is now a famous investor. And he says that if you're not embarrassed by your first version, then you waited too long. And that's kind of a good rule of thumb is like, get it out, get out the door, close the gap between you where you sit today and like 10 people using it. And, and because you'll learn more from 10 people trying to use it or, or, or using it and, and having different experiences with whatever it is you're building versus like a year of planning and a year of building in new features and, a, you know, or two years or three years. Cause a lot of times we build stuff that nobody wants, you know, we, yeah. we these assumptions and we operate with these ideas, but there's actually a gap between founder logic and customer logic. And the only way you can close that gap is to try to get something in people's hands, get them using it, Learn from what they're telling you and then let that guide your decision making and where you spend your time. That really tips the odds in your favor of, of, of getting something off the ground. That makes an awful lot of sense. So now when you started, you actually were starting pretty young and I would guess starting without cash. So how does one start and grow a really successful business when you don't have the cash or resources, when you're trying to bootstrap it along the way? Yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging. Uh, in both businesses I built uh, had no outside investors, had to kind of build it off of its own revenues. And um, the first landscaping business I built to, to 10 million a year in revenue with no outside debt either. And that was one of the only reasons I was awesome. able to get it sold was because, mm. because, you know, I may have had a, a, a multi-million dollar business and my, my competitors did also, but they also had multi-millions of dollars in debt. And so they couldn't sell They They had basically their business was a chain around their neck. And so going through that experience of building and selling the first business with no debt, 
I thought, well, the second company, you know, I certainly don't want to take on any debt. And then I started really understanding what what the dynamics of of raising outside capital, angel uh, investors, and, and venture capitals capitalists, and what that really entails. And and uh, you know, when it works out, it's great. But for most entrepreneurs, most founders, it's a bad bet because it really kind of limits your options. It can help you go fast, and if you're ready to kind of pour rocket fuel in your Toyota Camry, then by all means, you know, take on that outside money. But but if you're not, it can really kind of accelerate your 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 demise. And and a lot of times you end up building something and spending your time on something that investors like versus something that customers like. And and so it can really kind of cause you to kind of get sidetracked in the early days. And I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to build something where the platform would kind of sing for its supper almost. You know, we right. we we may, you know, say like in the early days, okay, you know, we're not taking any salaries and we made $2,000 last month uh, collectively, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. where, where do we spend that $2,000? And, and, you know, and it's kind of like your, your job as the founder is one of a capital allocator. A little bit of money comes in and then you put the money back to work. And if you do that right over and over again, it begins to compound and that 2000 may becoming 20,000. And before you know it, it's 200,000, it's $2 million that you're working with. And so it, it does snowball, it does compound, it can, it can tip the odds in your favor because uh, if you're self-funded, you focus on one thing and that's the customer. And that is, are, are our users, are our customers happy? Are they delighted with the product that we're building for them uh, or not? And if they're not, what's wrong? Because we have to fix it because we need that revenue to keep the lights on versus if you raise, you know, a $500,000 seed round and you can afford to hire a customer service rep and you hire somebody else to handle this, hire somebody. And then there's this gap between the reality of what's happening uh, and, and what your, what your uh, perspective of it is as the founder. And the next thing you know, there's no money in the bank and, and you didn't put up the numbers you needed. And now you got to go back to the investor community. Nobody's willing to fund the next round. And the sad thing is you just wasted two, three, four years of your life with, with nothing to show for it. So uh, that's that's my perspective on on outside capital. That's why we haven't raised any, and and now you know we're doing multiple eight figures a year in revenue with with no outside money, and 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 we're in kind of control of everything we want to do. So it's a good place to be. But the first three or four years were really really challenging. I, I will oh, say that must have been yeah, it's painful. I must agree. You know, I mean, it's awesome once you get to to this position, but that's those starting years are hard. Yeah. And by the same token, I have seen uh, external investment being such a double-edged sword because unfortunately too many of the funders are there for benefiting themselves in a way. So they're putting the cash in and they're handing out advice to these businesses that becomes their demise at the end of the day. The founder (laughs) loses their business through dilution and whatever else. Going back to something you said a little while ago, um, they race these founders through the company so fast that very often there are no processes and procedures built along the way. They're cutting corners everywhere they go because they're right. just trying to go too fast. So that unquestionably has to have been part of the secret to your success. It certainly and- is. It certainly is. If we had raised money, we wouldn't be here today. We would have gone too fast and we would have crashed and burned. So that it was a call for us, but I'm not, I'm not like anti venture capital. 
Um, I think it has its time and place, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, if you've been, if you've been through the game before, maybe you've crashed and burned a couple of times, maybe you've, uh, maybe you've sold a business, you know, got a single or a double under your belt, and then you know how to move faster and you know that all you're missing are, is the capital, then maybe it can make sense. But for most new founders, it, it's, it's a bad bet. Uh, and it's, and it's a trap that a lot of new founders get sucked into. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I try to tell our perspective that you can build a, 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 an eight figure business, uh, an eight figure tech company um, without, without having to go raise angel rounds, angel funding or, or venture capital. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, there is some awesome funding out there. There's some very patient investors, but unfortunately the majority are not like that. That's right. Now you founded your businesses um, with co-founders along the way. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, the co-founder route proves to be a limiting factor or a short-term solution. Did you find that you did anything different that made yours successful? I got extremely lucky, and that's really all there is to it. Most of the time, co-founders cause a business to fail, and they cause it to not take off rather than helping it. So the way I look at it is this. Um, you have to find your business soulmate. And it's kind of funny. People will, before they get married, will, will date somebody for two or three years, maybe even get engaged mm -hmm. for two years and then get married. And, and the weird thing is, is, is they'll start a, they'll start a business with somebody maybe they've known a month or a year <laughs> and they won't think about it longer than a week and they'll start the business with them. And you're probably going to end up spending more time with this person than you are your actual spouse. And if the business is successful, um, it, it's going to be, you know, more of a convoluted relationship than you have with your, your spouse. If the business is, is not successful, um, it's more difficult to unwind a business partnership than it is to get a divorce. It's, it's actually more of a serious commitment starting a business with somebody versus marrying somebody. And, the, and but people don't give it the same kind of weight. And so my advice is, is to find your business soulmate. And what I mean by that is like, somebody you cannot imagine starting the business without. Um, because the reality is most people start a business with a co-founder because they want some sort of validation. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like a crutch. Like, okay, well, this person is just as crazy as I am. Uh, therefore, I'm not crazy. And so, and, and, you know, so, so maybe, maybe I'm not stupid for, for taking this risk because this person is willing to do it with me. And also they kind of have this fallacy of, well, they'll, they'll do a lot of the work and, or those take a lot of the work off my shoulders. And, and so it'll be easier. And uh, it's like, it never works out that way. And, and a good test I would say is if you had 10 million, like just imagine you had $10 million in the bank um, and that's all you had. Would you write this person a check for $10 million to start this business with you today? Like, do you, do you like believe in them that much? Do you, can you, first off, do you believe in the opportunity for the business that much? Second, do you believe that this person can help you get there to the degree that you would write them a check for $10 million? And if the answer is no, well then, then don't start the business with it because if you're, if the business is successful, their equity is going to be worth $10 million, uh, maybe in as fast as three or four years. And the other thing too is, is if you decide you want to raise capital, well, their equity, you know, in a financing round could be worth $10 million. And, 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 and because you took them on as a co-founder, it limited your options on how much capital you could raise or an exit that you could take. And so, while well, I got very lucky. Um, I, my, I encourage people to try to go it alone, to learn as much as you can, execute as much of the stuff as you can on your own, and then try to hire 
contractors and freelancers to help you along with the stuff that you think you might need a co-founder for. Um, otherwise, you know, if you do find your, your business soulmate, you know, you, you try to get like a hacker and a hustler together. You try to get somebody right. who is just good at start getting the business going and somebody who knows the technical side and like it's a match made in heaven. Um, but the reality is, is it's almost never that way. And I try to encourage people to, to go it alone versus rushing to get a co-founder as a coping mechanism. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I came across a couple of entrepreneurs, unsuccessful entrepreneurs, who felt that the entrepreneurial road was too lonely to do it by themselves. And I just feel that's a bit of a silly reason to go into it with a co-founder because it's so more too. lonely yeah. after. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Um you know, if you're lonely in this game, there's a lot of meetup groups. There's a lot of uh, networking events. There's a lot of people you can befriend that that are working in, te- in in similar companies and kind of bounce ideas off of. Um, you know, wanting a co-founder to help you like get through the, the the loneliness of it is not a reason to get a co-founder. Yeah, no, so so true. So you've been successful, but for many. Um, entrepreneurship is not a successful road. Do you think that you have any particular techniques or secrets that you relied on to succeed in the tough times? For me, you know, I'm not particularly like talented at any, any one thing. It's, it's just, uh, I think my superpower may be consistency. It's just showing up day in, day, day out, uh, grinding on whatever the one or two things that we're working on is and not getting sidetracked by by all the other stuff and just doing that over and over and over again for a very long time and staying enthusiastic about what we're doing uh, until until we reach the the next milestone I think is 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 what's gotten us to you know and, and my team and is is much the same way and, and it's, that's what's gotten us awesome. where we are and, and looking back 22 years in business that's something that stands out it's like it's like there's highs and lows and just and just consistently just figuring out what the one or two things that matter at any stage of the game and focusing all your intensity on those things is what's gotten us to from where we are to where we, uh, where we were to where we are today. Um, I think you'll find like most entre- some most successful entrepreneurs are, are, are that way. Um, and, and, and the other thing is, is being like a generalist, being like mm-hmm. 80, 20 good at, at whatever the 20 things that you need to be good at in order to try to pull something like this off. You're going to have to be good at copywriting. You're going to have to be good at, at, at software design. You're going to have to be good at, at, uh, at, at figuring out uh, uh, systems architecture. And you're going to have to be good at figuring out how to use customer feedback to, to, to make decisions. And you're going to have to be a decent leader and a decent manager and a, and a decent, you're going to have to know bookkeeping. You're gonna, like all of these things. What? Like I'm not an expert at any of them, but I know enough to be dangerous at all of them. And I think it, I think the gold standard for this, like the 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 person to look at, might be like Elon Musk, and and let's look at Elon Musk and and say, you know, you know, it doesn't matter if it's SpaceX, you know, he can hold a conversation with a with with any rocket scientist in the in the in the building. He can talk to somebody on like the the rocket design and like how they how they uh, you know deal with uh, with 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 uh, shaping the the rocket so it'll it can land on it on its on its back like that and and then he can go over to he can go over to Tesla and talk to somebody about battery life and he can talk to the CFO about how they're raising you know a debt round and what the mechanics are like what my point is like awesome. it doesn't matter any any aspect of the business he's got 
a lot of talented people put in, in, in those unique roles, but he can have a high level conversation with any of them about anything. And so, you know, at a much smaller degree, like you as the founder of your small business, you kind of have to be that way. You, you kind of need to be pretty good at legal. You need to be pretty good at, at, at what, what, what the customer service policy is and why it is that way. You have to be good at the branding. You have to get good at the marketing. You can't outsource all these things without having some acumen in all of them. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Almost a bit of a generalist and, and just willing to roll up your sleeves and grind through the tough times or reach out and ask someone for assistance if, if you need it. So have you noticed in those who don't succeed, if there are any particular reasons why some do seem to succeed and repetitively succeed, whereas others I don't know, they seem to either struggle or fail on an ongoing basis or until they get it. Some of them are lucky. They, uh, yeah, what I see, and, and I do kind of coach some, some er, you know, early founders as a hobby. Yes. And one thing I see is they want to do everything but the hard work. And so, mm. and so it's like they, they get bogged down in this fake work and, and they don't want to do the hard work. And you know, an example of this would be, I was coaching a, a founder the other day who was working on a marketplace and they, they, they were coding up the marketplace that would, that would connect buyers and sellers in a, in a, in industrial supplies of some kind. And I said, you know, before we code this whole thing up, let's try to just fix, let's just try to sell a thousand dollars of this stuff the old way. Like let's, let's try to sell a thousand dollars of this stuff on offer up Craigslist, eBay, uh, Facebook marketplace, just so we can understand what the buyers look like and, and, and wh wh who they are and where they're hanging out. And if there's a business here and he just did not want to do that. He just wanted to sit behind the laptop and code. And he wasted a year of his life uh, coding up, you know, a full robust marketplace for, for, for a business where there was no business, you know, there, wow. nobody wanted to use this thing. You know, if he had just gone and done the hard work of, talking to people and hand cranking it for about three months, he could have understood there was no business opportunity there, but he didn't want to do that. He wanted to, to do the, the thing he wanted to do, which was just write software. And so that's something that I see a lot of. It's like the unwillingness to, 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 to get in the reps and, and do the hard work, you know, whether it be cranking out a blog post every day, doing a YouTube video once a week about what the company is doing, calling up 10 customers a day, talking to them, pitch 20 uh, journalists a day on, on covering your startup. Um, you know, the, the grind, the unwillingness to do that and the, and, and wanting to like outsource that is what, is what causes most entrepreneurs to not get from zero to level one or two. They, they just kind of, kind of just float around and, and, and pretend that they're an entrepreneur for several years until they finally give up or get burnt out. Yeah, makes sense. And burn through that initial financing round, as yeah. we were talking about earlier, on yeah. on the wrong things, unfortunately. Exactly. So, uh, so in your particular business, what trends do you think you're going to see coming down the road in the next, say, three to five years? I mean, it's a combination technology and a very necessary consumer product that you are are matching together. So are there particular trends that you're expecting? Yeah, we're kind of like in minute one of day one of people 
ordering services for their home on their smartphone. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like we're 2009 in food delivery. So in 2009 in food delivery, if you want a Chinese food or a pizza, you'd probably still call the Chinese restaurant or, or pizza hut and you would call them and they would deliver it for you. Maybe you might use Grubhub um, or you might use some other new service, but, but you wouldn't automatically think to do it on a website, much less your smartphone. So that's kind of where we're at um, in in terms of ordering lawn mowing service for your home. People still think to do it the old way. They don't think to just download an app and do it, even though it's much easier. And so, and so we kind of have the wind at our sails. We feel like, you know, the next five years is going to be, it's going to be continued adoption. People not wanting to call somebody, not wanting to leave a voicemail, not wanting to like haggle over price or leave a check Mm -hmm. under the mat, shoot them a Venmo or something. They, they literally just want to push a button, get it done and just move on to the next thing in their life. And so we're lucky in the sense that like macro kind of like avalanche is still at our back and, and we're going to, you know, we're riding that, that, that wave. And so, um, you know, even e-commerce, I, I want to say like, like 20%, you know, 80% of it's still, still physical. It's still it in is. stores. And so that, that's still, yeah. we still have a long way to go for software to finish eating the world. And that's where we're at. We're situated in a very small piece of that where people need to get this chore done at their house. They don't want to call and leave voicemails. They don't want to take a chance on somebody they don't know. They'd rather just download an app and read about the read reviews and hire the, the cheapest one and be done. And that's, that's the service we provide. Fantastic. I must admit, I'm inclined to agree. You're in the right place at the right time, and you've developed your software already. You know, it's, only I mean, taking, you, it's only taken 10 years to get there. <laughs> as you say, 10-year overnight success with a precursor to it that taught you something about the business. Yeah, that's, that's, right. that's almost entrepreneurship in a very brief summary. It's a uh, an overnight success that's an awful lot of work getting to that point. So do you have any thoughts in closing, anything we haven't discussed or anything that we should revisit? You know, yeah. One thing that I uh, like to share is uh, I I watched an interview with a guy named Mark Andreessen, uh, I guess a couple couple weeks ago. And one thing he talks about, and so Mark Andreessen was the guy who, who invented the first web browser? Like he, like the web browser we all use this day. A lot of the, like the, the backbone of what that, what the, what that software operates on. Mark Andreessen invented it. He invented it in 1992. And so he talks about going out to uh, San Francisco Silicon Valley in 1992, and he, and he felt like he missed it. He felt like it was all over. IBM, Apple, Microsoft, they all owned the technology space, and there was no more opportunity to innovate. And that it was all gone. They, they and they were too late. And how silly is that? Like that was the internet had not even the World Wide Web had not even been invented yet. He helped invent it. And so um, he was kind of like just just in the very beginning. And so my point is is that at times as a founder, whether you're a new founder or maybe you you, you know you're just getting started, you can feel like you missed it. You can feel like you're too late to the game. And the reality is you didn't miss it. It always gets bigger. There, the opportunities always grow and just get in the game because only when you're in the game can you see those opportunities and take advantage of them. So you didn't miss it. It's not too late. Get started. That's an awesome thought because, I mean, it's so often that one looks at what you perceive to be a market opportunity and do think you're either too late 
or that, as you suggested with that other founder, that you need to perfect something and present it to the market because you've got to make this alternative niche of the market. Whereas, I mean, as you've suggested, you feel that you're just in a tiny piece of a That's really right. large market. So That's exactly that is phenomenal. Right. Thank you for the, the suggestion. So if people want to learn more, get hold of you, learn specifically about your business, where can they go? Yeah, it's life's too short to mow your own yard. So download Green Pal in the App Store or Play Store. Uh, anybody who wants to reach me, Instagram is the best place to find me. Brian M. Clayton, just drop me a DM there. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for joining us today. This has been an awful lot of fun. And I must admit, I think the sky's the limit. You've got a long way to go in developing this business. Thank you, Noah. I really appreciate you having me on. Have an awesome day. You as well. The Unlocking Business Growth Podcast is sponsored by Protea Consulting Professional Corporation. We help our clients translate their operating and accounting data into the strategy for business growth they're truly capable of. Subscribe to the Unlocking Business Growth Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify to hear from other companies that have overcome growth challenges. Get a free copy of NOLA's latest book, the 5F strategy, bottom line growth in any economy without additional sales and marketing. And download the financial growth scorecard at proteaconsulting.ca. Work with us to achieve your business potential. To find out if we're a fit for your business, email info at proteaconsulting.ca and follow the Unlocking Business Growth podcast on LinkedIn and Facebook.